All right, thank you all so much for coming to our STR Meet a Method event. Um, our task force leader, Heather, uh, Heather Berry, will kick off our session and we'll go straight uh, into our wonderful discussions on formal models. Heather? Uh, thank, thank you very much, Gwen. So I just wanna start this event off by recognizing the fantastic volunteers who not only organize events like this one, but also share their time and experience with SDR members. I know our members get a lot out of these sessions because I hear from them afterward. So this is the second in the series that we're doing on Meet a Method um, over this academic year. And um, you know, we will be posting this on our YouTube channel so that people who can't be here in person are able to watch this and benefit from this after the fact. But so I wanna specifically thank Gwen for organizing this. I wanna thank John for uh, also, he'll ultimately be moderator. So he's gonna talk and be moderator on this event. Um, who are, so Arcaday, um, Thibo, um, looking at names here, Mike, Felipe, and Martin. Thank you very much for your time on this. I really appreciate your time. I know our members do as well. So I don't wanna take up a lot of time, but please uh, go ahead either John or Gwen and start this event off. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, while we still uh, wait for people to trickle in, I do have uh, uh, 70 as the number of uh, registered uh, participants. And for an event like this with a special focus, uh, it is really amazing to have uh, this many uh, participants. So I encourage you to uh, ask your questions, post your comments on the chat, and I will be um, moderating the chat. So we will have uh, John Chan do the welcome and in introduction, um, and then I'll do a quick um, capture uh, of uh, uh, the people who are participating um, with a um, video. Uh, so I will be giving you a visual cue in just a moment. All right, go. So go right ahead, John. Welcome and thank you for uh, attending this uh, virtual uh, meeting. I uh, appreciate all the interest. So um, who are we? Um, we are uh, Arkady, uh, Fibo, and myself will be presenting. And Felipe, Felipe uh, Martin, and uh, Mike will be uh, our discussants. So um, I'll give a, a big hand to, to all these folks for uh, giving up their um, precious time to um, uh, share their thoughts today. So um, I want to lead out, off with this question of what does a modeling paper look like? And um, I, I do want to start by saying that, um, you know, you may be called to uh, uh, do a modeling paper. Um, you, you might also, uh, in addition, even if you aren't uh, right there and ready to, to do a modeling paper, you might be called on to review a modeling paper. So I just want to start by saying that, that there's kind of um, um, a lot of angles where, where you can come at this, and, and I hope you uh, learn something from this. Um, so here's kind of a structure of a traditional empirical paper that uh, I'm sure all of us are very familiar with, right? There's a motivation, a research question, what's the gap uh, theory, and a set of hypotheses associated with that. And then uh, the empirics, whether it's um, uh, archival data, as many of us do, or, or perhaps a survey. Um, and within this um, kind of paradigm, uh, I think it's, it's very uh, strongly uh, our kind of uh, uh, 
uh, notion that that the motivation and the theory are, are really where the contribution lies. And uh, empirics, um, and, and I don't want to be too dismissive here because I, I think there are uh, wonderful empiricists who, who uh, have these sort of contributions, but there's sort of the, the notion that um, for a lot of papers, it's, it's almost like you can take a class and just run Stata. Um, and it's, it's generally thought of to be less of a contribution, right? And so that's kind of the structure of a traditional empirical paper. Um, what I've experienced, uh, you know, both in, in reviewing papers and just sort of uh, general sort of uh, ways of thinking about it, is that we're so strongly um, embedded in this traditional empirical paper paradigm that we just poured it over to modeling papers. And uh, you say, okay, there's the motivation theory and then uh, emp empirics, uh, quote unquote, which is testing a theory using the model. And no, that, that, that isn't really, I, I think, the, the right way to think of it. Um, so in my mind, this is kind of the, the structure of a simulation model paper or, or a mathematical model, model paper for that matter. Um, and, and for... For you modelers out there, this is, uh, you know, certainly old hat, I think, but uh, there's, there is like uh, the more traditional empirical papers, a motivation, a research question and a gap. But the model is, is uh, one way, I guess I, I like to think of it is that the model uh, states your assumptions about the world. And then um, in addition to that, uh, what we're trying to do is uh, bring out, you know, what the model teaches us about this world that we've constructed, uh, if that makes sense. And, and so both of these are contributions, right? Um, and what I thought I'd do now is just quickly run through some examples of that. And what better examples than from um, our uh, uh, distinguished uh, discussants? I'll do one for each. Uh, the three presenters will have our own paper, so the, that'll sort of complete the picture, right? Um, <clears throat> so he, here's a, a paper that uh, some of you uh, may, may be familiar with. Uh, uh, Mike Lennox uh, wrote this paper uh, a, a while back. And the motivating question here is um, there's this gap, you know. Uh, you know, there's an industry has uh, sort of inherently a potential for interdependency among activities. Uh, and what's the link between that and the distribution of profits uh, across an industry? And he and his collaborators use this um, NK model, right? Uh, a model of complexity. Um, and they do it in this uh, a nice way where you have um, interdependencies uh, to uh, determine um, a, a, a cost or quality value. Uh, they overlay a competitive model, either Cournot or a utility model. And what's novel is that, that this, uh, their model combines these things, right? And uh, one of their key contributions is that this potential for interdependency matters to the distribution of industry profits. And um, I think the effects are not, not so obvious. There's a, a curvilinear shape, uh, inverse U. Um, and for the sake of time, uh, um, I'll just sort of say this inverse U is not obvious. 
Um, and there's some intuition that you can, you can sort of look at on the slides for why this is true. Um, but I want, you, I want to draw your attention to the, the, the broader notion that uh, uh, the assumptions, in other words, the model is this sandbox in which you can develop rich theory, right? And that's kind of the high level kind of uh, insight that, you know, honestly, when, when before I started doing models myself, I didn't really get that, right? Um, okay, so let's see where, we, okay. So um, next I wanna draw your attention to uh, Martin's uh, fairly recent paper with uh, Gwen Lee, who's also here. Uh, and their motivating question is how might the structure of uh, interdependencies shape the innovativeness of firms in an ecosystem, right? And one thing that they addressed that um, I think was a little bit less addressed in prior work is that it jointly considers um, both upstream and downstream firms, right? And they have a similar model of complexity, um, although they have landscapes that, that can be attached across uh, each other through uh, the C part of the model. Um, so there's a structure of interdependencies and this, what's unique is this flow of interdependence to distinguish upstream and downstream firms. Um, and so here's a quick sketch of that. Um, pictorially, there are two firms uh, in each stage here going from upstream to downstream. Uh, a component is made by a, a particular firm. Um, and one of the keys is that downstream firms can mix and match and, and choose between the outputs of, of the uh, firms in the prior stages, right? And um, so uh, one of the key contributions is that the structure, the structure of this ecosystem uh, matters to the effectiveness of firm level innovative processes, right? And this interdependence has a different uh, effect uh, depending on whether you're talking about within the components or across different components, right? And that's one of the, the cool features of their model that they're uh, uh, cool um, findings, right? Um, and um, just as with uh, the, the the prior paper uh, that Mike Mike Lennox did with his co-authors, you know, you can you can think of this model as a sandbox for for developing uh, rich theory. Okay, so uh, last but certainly not least, we come to Felipe's paper. Where, where the motivating question is, does organizational structure affect uh, uh, its ability to explore versus exploit? And the model, uh, I really appreciate this. It's so parsimonious. It's just, you know, you have an, an underlying true quality of, uh, uh, of, of the, the opportunity uh, or, or the design uh, or the, and there's a distribution that, that, that is what the, uh, the agent perceives, right? And so bringing it to an organization, it could be either a polyarchy, and it, meaning it's kind of like uh, an or function where, where uh, if either agent accepts the, the, uh, uh, the uh, project, it, it goes through, or it could be a hierarchy where they both have to accept it. And through this simple structure, um, 
you can uh, look at sort of the uh, efficacy of different types of organizations depending on the extent to which they're they're hierarchical or or uh, have a polyarchy and exactly how they're arranged in, in that fashion, right? Um, and what it the key takeaway is that red shape, right? It's this concave shape. So there are sort of uh, good trade-offs between um, exploring and exploiting, or in, in a, a slightly different sense, commission and, and omission errors, because you know, um, part of exploring is, is, is how costly these errors are that, that determines you know, what the balance between the two. Um, so there's a desirable uh, efficient frontier of organizational forms. And um, I wanna highlight here that this formalism is, is immensely valuable because um, at least to, to sort of my, my naive eyes, I, I can't see very easily how you would anticipate this result. Right. Um, so uh, some food for thought as we proceed. Uh, how do you come up with these questions that the model can answer? Or maybe is it uh, that we should take a garbage can approach, if you will? You, you have a model and, and, and there are problems that it can solve. Uh, does there has, have to be a contribution within the model itself? Um, and you might think of other questions as well uh, that perhaps um, these these thoughts have prompted. Okay, so um, this is our agenda for today. Uh, we are going to have first uh, Arcady presenting, and the discussant will be Felipe. And we're just going to do these in that order, right? So Arcady presents, Felipe discusses, then I will present, and uh, Michael will uh, discuss for me, and then finally uh, Fibo will present, and uh, Martin will discuss. So. Um, let's uh, go right ahead, Arkady, whenever you're ready. Yeah, thank you. I'm ready. I will start sharing the screen now. Okay, I'll stop sharing. Ooh, can you see my front slide? Yes. Thank you. Hello, I'm Arkady Sakhartov from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I want to thank the organizers and the participants of this panel on how to contribute to strategic management theory through modeling. I am presenting a study titled Corporate Diversification and Risk, Portfolio Effects and Resource Redeployability. Does corporate diversification reduce corporate risk? A prevalent response to this question is yes. This response is common among corporate executives. For instance, the CEO of Bombardier Incorporated, Laurent Baudouin, justified the participation of his firm in product markets for snowmobiles and railroad vehicles as a way to contain variants of corporate returns. Likewise, in diversifying between retail banking and institutional financial services, JP Morgan Chase expected a reduction in risk. In turn, the managerial appeal to the risk reduction in geographic diversification is seen in this quote from the 10K report of ExxonMobil. Another example of managers believe that geographic diversification cuts risk is taken from the report of Santander Bank. Is this belief supported empirically? For product market diversification, a few exploratory studies have indeed found 
the negative relationship between such diversification and risk. However, even more studies also diagnosed the lack of a statistically significant negative relationship or even reported a statistically significant positive relationship. For geographic diversification, many empirical studies have detected a negative relationship between such diversification and risk. Meanwhile, multiple other studies that sought to support this relationship could not confirm it empirically. So what is a theoretical basis for us to expect that corporate diversification reduces risk? By analogy with risk pooling effects offered by the portfolio theory to describe how stock investors cut risk of portfolios by pooling various stocks, researchers expected that firms diversifying across product or geographic markets can also cut risk. Meanwhile, some researchers also noted that corporate diversification has its unique features. Thus, unlike stock investors, firms aim for economies of scope, including intertemporal economies, also known as resource redeployability. Multiple empirical studies speculated that firms reduce risk when withdrawing their resources from an underperforming market and redeploying them to a better performing market especially when these markets are closely related to each other, thus having low redeployment cost, and when they have negatively correlated returns. If that informal prediction were indeed true, it would not change the affirmative response to my motivating question. However, that informal prediction underestimated the complexity of redeployability in at least two ways. First, the use of redeployability is highly contingent on time and on the realization of uncertain returns. Second, the use of redeployment is path dependent and there are multitudes of paths through which market returns can evolve. I use a formal model to work through these two analytical complications and I invite you to read my paper to follow the model structure. So I will now show the three groups of results from the model. Let's first make sure that the model does not disturb the well-established risk pooling effect that is shared by portfolio and corporate diversification. The variation of color in this figure illustrates the efficacy of risk pooling. The difference in risk between the undiversified firm and the diversified firm. In both cases, redeployability is absent. The first pattern here is that the plot does not contain negative value for the response variable. In line with the portfolio theory, the firm that diversifies across markets with less than perfectly correlated returns manages to reduce risk. The second pattern here is that the figure alters its tone from red at the bottom to dark blue at the top. As was known from the portfolio theory, more positive correlation raises the tendency for returns to be in phase, thus diminishing the efficacy of the risk pooling towards the top margin in this figure. The second group of results is unique to redeployability. Here, the variation of color shows the difference in risk between the diversified firm with redeployability and the diversified firm without redeployability. The key pattern is that the response variable never gets negative. 
Thus, in contrast to informal predictions, redeployability cannot reduce risk. The second fact is that the plot changes color from red at the left margin to dark blue at the right margin, thus revealing that risk added by redeployability declines in the redeployment cost or increases in relatedness. Accordingly, contrary to previous speculations, related, relatedly diversified firms cannot have a better risk reduction capacity than unrelatedly diversified firms. The third pattern here is that the figure changes color from red at the bottom to dark blue at the top, thus indicating that risk added by redeployability declines in return correlation. Notice that this negative effect of correlation on risk with redeployability counters the positive effect of correlation with the portfolio effect that was diagnosed in the previous figure. So how the two effects countervailing each other merge into the ultimate effect of corporate diversification is considered next. This figure displays the eventual difference in risk between the diversified firm with redeployability and the undiversified firm. The dash dot line separates the area where corporate diversification, just like portfolio diversification, reduces risk from the area where corporate diversification adds extra risk. The vast area to the left of that line shows ample scenarios where corporate diversification increases risk well above the level in the undiversified firm. While the strongest enhancement occurs with the weakly positive correlation, this risk enhancement is actually robustly present with any correlation when the redeployment cost is low to moderate or when relatedness is moderate to strong. So let's circle back to the motivating question. Does corporate diversification across product or geographic markets reduce risk as was expected by managers and by researchers? We now know the correct answer is not yes. Rather, it depends on the configuration of the determinants of resource redeployability, the key distinctive feature of corporate diversification. The popular analogy of corporate diversification to portfolio diversification has turned out to be tenuous, specifically because it often disregarded this distinctive feature. Meanwhile, even those few informal studies that alluded to redeployability did not get the answer right. The use of redeployability can only increase risk. Accordingly, related diversification and diversification across markets with negatively correlated returns that both promote redeployability, often increase corporate risk instead of reducing it. The formal of model derives the true relationship between corporate diversification and risk that was unavailable in previously informal predictions, and that can now be used in empirical research on corporate diversification and also, importantly, by corporate managers. The news is that corporate diversification often raises risk well above the level in the comparable undiversified firm. If the firm's markets are closely or at least moderately related to each other. Thank you. I will now pass it to Felipe for the discussions. Thank you. So thank you, Arkady. That was a very, 
very that's a very interesting paper. So I will switch now to my slides and I will use my slides as my background. So to see this full screen, I think you have to switch to speaker view. Okay. So let me let me get started. So when I was asked to do this, I said, hey, this is very challenging. It is, yeah, because I have to review an excellent paper. Yeah, this is a paper that, as I understand, it's very close to, to acceptance. The paper is very relevant. Uh, the paper has interesting results, and it's also clearly written. And also it's written by an author who has thought, has thought for many years about the subject and has written many papers about it. Yeah, so challenging. So how can I add value with this presentation? And then I thought, well, what I could do is I could show you how I could think if I had received this paper as an editor, how I could have thought about the model. Some of my comments may be wrong, yeah, but what I will tell you is what would be my reaction from reading the paper carefully. And I will base this uh, using uh, a paper I, I published last year on uh, models, yeah. So this is a paper that uh, owes a lot to a conference that when organized, where I present the first version of, of this, how to, what are the benefits of using models, how to write a model. So, so I will be drawing ideas, particularly a framework I have there about how to evaluate models. So probably I will not add much value to Arcadi. Sorry, Arcadi. Yeah. Uh, but the hope is that I will add some value to those in the audience who, who are thinking about building a, a model, have not written as many models, or are considering yeah, how, whether to, to write a model and how to write it. So the idea of this framework about thinking of the quality of a model says there are three main dimensions. One is the relevance of the thing that's addressed by the model. The other is the surprise of the results. And the other is the simplicity of the model. Yeah, these are the three axes. Yeah, so the higher you are on the three of them, the better. So regarding relevance, I think it's super relevant. First of all, there's a practical relevance. Sorry, someone says I can't see the presentation. Is it my problem? You have to switch to um, speaker view in your top right. Hope that works. The others can see the presentation. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So very relevant, first of all, practical relevance. Resource redeployment is a very common phenomenon. All firms do this. Theoretical, really relevant. Yeah. This is at the core of many theories like the RVB, dynamic capabilities, the resource allocation process, diversification, international manage management. So very central. So high relevance. Then surprise. Yes, there are cases where diversification doesn't have the aimed uh, objective. And the main way of thinking about diversification that, that we know, which is Markovitz portfolio theory, uh, it's not the right way to think, or it's not the complete way of thinking about this. And also provides a new way of thinking about how to make sense of the conflicting observations. So I would say surprise also very high. And then simplicity. Yeah, and in, in, in that paper about um, uh, models I wrote, I said there are very, from very simple to very complicated models. So my question here is where to, to place Arcadi's model in this spectrum? 
And at least my feeling when reading this is I, I wasn't sure. So there were some signs of complexity. For example, there were 32 pages with appendices. There was a 17-step explanation of the simulation that used two pages and a half. And there were 16 footnotes. Yeah? So are all those necessary? Is this necessary complexity or, or, or it's unnecessary complexity? I am, I am not completely sure. And I would have said that in, in, uh, in my letter. An important thing is that the key mechanism to understand what's going on, it's only explained in an appendix. Yeah? So how this allocation is computed, it's using dynamic programming, an equation called Bellman equation. The way to solve this is looking at a binomial tree. And that is never explained in the paper. The only way, the only hint that M is endogenous is a little sentence there, but it's not clear where M, the main decision that managers are making is coming from. So I don't have a clear understanding from reading the body of the paper about how the managers in the model think. So what's the problem of, of all this complexity is that it becomes very hard. There's a lot of friction in communicating ideas and then papers end up getting fewer readers. And I think a good idea like this one should have many readers. And a practical reason is also that a complex problem, I'm sorry, a complex model can be attacked from two flanks. You will have reviewers telling you, as in all models, hey, why don't you add this, 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 and that, asking you to make it more complex. But there will be other reviewers that will be telling you, hey, simplify the model. Uh, so there will be many requests. And I think that that's what explains the 32 pages of appendices, yeah? That there were these two types of, of requests from the reviewers. So I was thinking, what could be a simpler model or what could be like the baseline that, that I could have asked for in the letter? And, and then I would like to have an explanation for why not this baseline and why we need the more complicated model that I trust that we need, but it's not clear in, in the paper why. So for me, the baseline is that there's a company that doesn't do redeployment. It's diversified. It, let's say it has two subsidiaries, one and two. And the return, R, big R of this firm, is a weighted average between the returns of the two subsidiaries. And this, how diversified is the firm? If D is zero, all the returns come from the first subsidiary. If R is, sorry, if D is 0 0.5, comes 50, 50% from each one of the subsidiaries. And these returns are random variables that have some correlation. That, that's a key parameter in, in, in the paper, that how correlated are the two markets. And then there's the return of the corporation with redeployment. And what's happening here, it's again a weighted average between the two subsidiaries. But now you redeploy, you remove some resources from one company and you send them to the other. And that has a cost. Yeah, so how much you moved time C, which is the cost of that redeployment, of unit of redeployment. And then I think the question of the paper is to analyze the ratio of the risk of the two alternatives. So you, could, you can compute, I computed in fact, the standard deviation of the second equation over the standard deviation of the, of the first equation. And then you look when that is above 100% and when it's below 100% as a function of the parameters. And, and yeah, there are cases where both things happen. So my guess is that the review process would have been easier 
if the paper had started with this simple, very simple model and explain why this simple model is not enough to really understand the problem. Uh, other ideas about simplification, it's just the presentation now, it's not the model, but sometimes using variable names can make a, better variable names can make a big difference. For example, there was this one, took me a while to understand what it meant. Then I realized ah, it's the allocation of firm I at time just before time zero, but there are just two firms, so this could be just one diversification parameter. Letters that resemble the word, so R for return, small r for return of smaller things, uh, C for cost. It allows us to use our mind to understand the real problem rather than to get uh, stuck with the model. Other simplifying things have a glossary with terms, picture of the process, the binomial tree, maybe a diagram explaining the simulation rather than the 17 points, and maybe a table summarizing the results, which are the things that the future generations will, will want to test. So why so much stress on simplicity? Ah, because simplicity is super important. Um, because the main benefit of a model is, is this thing, the title of that paper, it's an old sentence in Latin, certum quod factum, it means we only uh, are certain about the things that we can build ourselves. And um, a model, we want to rebuild it. Yeah? When we read a model, we want to be sure that we can rebuild the, all the results. So if I cannot reproduce the model easily, I don't get this main benefit from, from the model. Other thoughts, I think there's a big potential here for Arcali trying to establish this as a canonical model to think about interactions over time. That's a very important type of interaction. And there are interactions at the same time. And, and, and for that, the canonical models, the NK model, Arcali's model could be the canonical way of thinking of, of interactions over time. I had some questions about assumptions, but running out of time, I will share this with Arkady. Yeah, but a key thing for me here is, is this behaviorally plausible? Our man, real managers can do this very complicated process. And here, the opportunity I see is to compare his results to a simple heuristic of reallocation. Then in conclusion, I think there's a lot to like about this paper. It's very relevant, very surprising, clearly written, and I really learned a lot from reading it. I would have loved the paper even more if it had, if I was sure that it's the simplest possible model and if I could have been able to easily replicate the results. Yeah, but overall, I am very happy to have read this paper and I encourage all of you to do the same. Thank you. Thank you very much, Philippe. This is very helpful. Uh, you, you have made a very comprehensive discussion. I appreciate it. I will, I will rewatch and write down all comments. Uh, I hope that this video will be available then, right? Thank you, Arkady. Thank you. Very good paper. Okay. Um, so I, if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, I'm next. And so um, for the sake of time, let me go ahead and um, get started. So I'm going to be presenting a, a paper entitled um, Pivot Rules for Overconfident Entrepreneurs, and um, it's work with uh, my uh, co-authors, uh, Dan Elfenbein, Hart Posen, and Ming Zhu Wang. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, I, I just want to thank them for um, 
you know, uh, working with me uh, quite a while now. So let me give you an overview. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Yes. So um, our model is a learning model of entrepreneurial entry and exit. And um, one of the, the nice features is that it's able to incorporate bias. Um, and here in this paper, we're examining a sequential experimentation, right? So we're examining um, the notion that, that a firm can test a, a slew of ideas prior to entry, and it pivots across these different ideas um, and in, in an experimental fashion, right? <clears throat> so um, if you're familiar with a lean startup, you might already be seeing the connection to, to that um, paradigm and the build, measure, and learn cycle that um, you know, we, we teach uh, students uh, when we incorporate that in the classroom. <clears throat> Our focus is on this idea of a, a, what we call a program of experimentation. And that really just consists of the number of experiments and a, a threshold for switching between one idea and another. Okay. And this, uh, as I'll explain uh, in more depth later, this contrasts with uh, recent work that focuses, focuses primarily on a single experiment and, and a, a subsequent pivot. And um, I guess in a nutshell, uh, the models um, main um, ahas are that it sheds light on co conventional wisdoms and other notions about the lean startup. Uh, for example, it contrasts with uh, popular held, popularly held virtues of aggressive and uh, frequent pivoting. Um, aggressive pivoting increases performance for overconfident entrepreneurs. And I hope to get to that uh, here. I have a lot, so I'm not sure, but uh, and currently it's uh, uh, under revision at AMR. Okay, so um, <clears throat> if we look at uh, uh, the history of this idea of, of entrepreneurship, um, there's been um, a popular sort of idea of staying the course. Here's a guy who's, um, maybe I can play a little bit of this clip. You know, I, I'm skipping through just for the sake of time. Uh, I'm, I'm skipping through for the sake of time, but he's, you know, um, apparently a talented uh, animator. Uh, actually, he's a very talented animator. It's uh, Walt Disney, right? And he failed for a long time before coming across um, the uh, cartoon character uh, Mickey Mouse, which uh, is uh, need to say no more. <laughs> um, there's uh, this uh, familiar toy, uh, the Slinky. I forgot to bring it uh, here so I could show you. I have a Slinky somewhere, but um, you know, it, uh, the original purpose was to use as a shock absorber for ships or something like that. And, and so this entrepreneur failed for a while, took a couple of years and uh, was eventually successful. More recently, there's been this mantra, you know, with fast paced startups and things like that of the, the idea of failing fast and failing often. So look at PayPal. In the span of time that uh, these prior entrepreneurs were persisting with, with a particular idea, PayPal cycled through a bunch of ideas before hitting upon um, the, the PayPal that we, we know today. Okay. so. So the question is, what determines whether, when, and how often a new venture should pivot? 
And um, if you look at just, this is a very, you know, coarse kind of thing, but it's suggestive that uh, fast and aggressive pivoting uh, is, is perhaps increasingly emphasized in uh, today's world, right? So you do a Google trend search and pivot fa fast and, uh, is, is a term that is used a lot more often than pivot slow. And um, our study seeks to, you know, in essence, provide some what I like to say as rigorous circumspe uh, circumspection to this trend. Um, <clears throat> and let me just spend a, a, a little bit of time connecting with these notions from the lean startup, right? There's this idea of a minimum viable product to do rapid prototyping. It's conventionally thought to be really quick and dirty, low cost, very easy. Uh, uh, to build and evaluate. Um, but in reality, uh, I, I'm not so sure these, these ideals are so ideal. Uh, there are resource constraints. MVPs are in practice not easy to or cheap to design. And in some communications we, we have with uh, the CEO of Intuit, um, you know, his, his point is that um, feedback is noisy, you know, and in his world of engineering, uh, you can tweak these, these early ideas indefinitely, right? Um, and, uh, and as Reese says, uh, Eric Reese says in his um, famous book about the lean startup, uh, there's, there perhaps is a misconception that, that um, these ideas of um, testing exp with, through experimentation and pivoting is, is a very clinical formula that you could easily do uh, to make uh, these pivot versus persevere decisions. And he claims, or he, he observes that this is simply not true. Okay, so <clears throat> let me uh, just spend a, a, a real uh, short amount of time getting into our model. We have a, a very parsimonious models. There's just two types of opportunities, good and bad. You're good with probability P, there's noisy feedback. There is a cost to entry. So you have a, a pre-entry period that's costless to evaluate entry, and then uh, post-entry, you, you may choose to enter and, and you, you, you can exit. So uh, a quick way to sort of phrase this is that in the pre-entry period, you learn, but you don't earn. And then uh, post-entry, you, you experience profits and losses directly, right? And you enter if you believe that um, the expected value ex exceeds the opportunity cost of entry. Um, showing some actual sort of simulation outputs is, is sometimes helpful to, to see what's going on, right? So in our model, we have an entrepreneur with a 50% likelihood of having a type H or good idea. If, if the entrepreneur enters, it begins accruing profit and loss. There's a threshold that um, we can calculate. It's, it's a Bayesian uh, a correct threshold, if you will. And, and entrepreneurs enter if, if uh, their beliefs exceed this threshold. You can see here depicted that there is a mistake in that black line is uh, an entrepreneur with a good idea that doesn't enter. And then finally, um, an entrepreneur uh, that has entered can exit if it determines that its idea is poor. Sorry, my computer's lagging like crazy. I don't know why. So um, 
we we can um, our our ideas are very much mapped uh, to the lean start uh, lean startup conception very easily of this build measure learn cycle, right? So this sort of build measure learn is abstracted in in our language as an experiment, and then the, we also have directly ported the idea of pivots and ideas. Okay. Um, and revisiting this, this um, terminology, which helps define our contribution, we, we think of this pre-entry period as a program of experimentation, where prior work has tended to emphasize uh, a single experiment. Um, we think of this as you know, chopping up the pre-entry period. Um, you have experiments. The question of, is how many you should have? Um, and when should you pivot? What's the belief threshold for which you uh, decide whether to pivot or not, right? How, how, how strongly do your beliefs have to be about it being a good idea for you to um, stay the course rather than pivot? Um, and so here's one of our, our, our baseline results with unbiased entrepreneurs. So they don't have any um, cognitive biases. The key result is that you see here that conservative uh, pivot threat uh, strategies where um, your pivot is, is uh, threshold is rather low, right? So um, you, you would tend to stay the course. Uh, conservatism is, is generally good. Balanced strategies are optimal for a given range of, it should, should read X, which is the number of experiments. You see the yellow line is, is superior for a range of uh, a number of ex experiments that you've decided to, to have. Um, and there are limits to experimentation. The profit eventually falls. And no matter what your threshold you decide for pivoting, if you have too many experiments, it's, it's not a good thing, right? And so entrepreneurs should be prepared to pivot, uh, but more pivoting is um, not necessarily a good thing. And why is this so? Why, why is this balanced pivot strategy or a moderate, moderate number of experiments good? What, what's the intuition? Um, the underlying mechanism is, is uh, what we call this experimentation pivot trade-off, right? So on the one hand, you can do as many experiments as you want, but in doing so, um, you have to balance that against the amount of information you can gather on each experiment to reduce sort of um, uncertainty about, about the, that particular idea underlying the experiment. Okay, so, um, and, and I think for the sake of time, I'll just close with, with uh, this result. Um, it, are more pivots uh, associated with greater performance? And we, we can think of this as sort of uh, an empirical uh, question. It, it, for an empiricist, uh, would they expect to observe that in, in, a, in a real world setting? There are reasons to suggest that maybe the answer is yes. So, you know, some uh, uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneurs just may have a better notion of how to experiment across ideas and, and how to sift through those, right? And that's, by the way, um, uh, the, the number of pivots X in our, in our model, in a sense. Um, but an important factor in, in considering this question is, is the selection effect, right? Those uh, entrepreneurs that have the bad luck of needing to pivot 
are saddled with this problem of having less time to make each decision, right? And they're, they're less informed. So that's sort of the intuition underlying this figure, why uh, we might expect from our model, if, if, uh, if an entrepreneur has uh, a greater number of realized pivots that, that uh, he's taken, the, the profit should be lower. Okay, so, okay, so for sake of time, I'll skip this. And let me just conclude um, with some of our intended contributions. We have a formal examination of this idea of a program of experimentation, the sequential idea evaluation and pivots, you know, how many ideas or uh, uh, experiments should we conduct? Um, how should we decide to pivot? Um, we put some sort of uh, conditions on this idea of pivoting fast and often. Uh, conservatism is, is sometimes better. Um, and an empiricist who observed, who's looking at uh, like real world data on performance versus number of pivots should uh, exercise caution in, in, in interpretation because this selection effect that I just talked about does matter. And it's not just a function of, for example, capabilities or, or the right pivot strategy. Um, so uh, that's all I have. All right, John, is it for me now to take the, uh, take the wheel? Yes, yes, you, you have the wheel. All right, let me uh, just pull up some slides here real quick. All right, hopefully everyone can see this now. So, uh, you know, similarly to uh, Felipe, I have uh, on my hands a very well-developed, uh, well-thought-out paper. So there's not a lot of specific comments that I'm going to bring, um, but I do want to bring some kind of just broader overarching thoughts here uh, about the, the, the work that they're doing. I, I think this is an excellent example of the value of modeling. Uh, I love that the paper is grounded in this kind of popular phenomenon of lean startup with these recommendations like pivot early and pivot often. Um, but what they're fundamentally doing is, is unpacking that and providing a, uh, a mechanism for us to understand at a more specific level what exactly would we recommend in different, different circumstances. I, I also think that they are tackling a problem that is actually far bigger than the question of pivot or not. So just to have some fun, I thought I'd reframe their paper in the following way. Uh, imagine the uh, gold rush in California back in the uh, 1800s or so. Uh, here's a, an artist rendering of that, uh, of that event. And if you think about the challenge as a gold miner is you come into, this is the Sacramento Valley supposedly, you come in and you see all these people mining for gold and you have to decide where do you look for profitable opportunities for mining gold. So if I was gonna use that framing here, you can think of kind of what they're doing in this paper in the following way. If you think about this geography having a grid on it, each piece of that grid represents a potential idea, right? A potential profitable opportunity here. And so in their model, actors are effectively forming expectations about the potential profitability of each idea. Uh, of each of these little spaces. And then they're running experiments. They're uh, you know, updating those expectations based on some information that they receive uh, and adjusting the likelihood that they think a given plot of land or a given idea is going to be profitable. And so they, cause, they call this idea of moving from one place to another is in essence the idea of a pivot, right? So we're searching one place, we're running some experiments, it's looking unfavorable, we might pivot to a new location, 
uh, and, and uh, decide to experiment there as well. And then eventually after I've done a little experimentation, maybe pivoted a few times, I make a formal uh, decision to enter, at which point I start my formal mining, mining in my example here. And maybe I give up at some later point in time, but we decide to enter the market. And then they add some really interesting complexities here in terms of actors may have some biases and their expectations. Uh, and then they have what I'm calling tendencies, but this is this idea of, are you more aggressively pivoting? Are you more conservative in your pivot? So if I was gonna summarize the, uh, uh, the findings here, uh, it, it's kind of a classic Goldilocks uh, uh, outcome here. And I don't say that pejoratively, I, I mean that very positively here that, you know, not surprisingly, the answer is not pivot always or pivot never, right? They, they show some good evidence that pivoting can be valuable, but there clearly is a, is a sweet spot here. Um, they talk about how aggressive actors can mistakenly enter, over-enter basically, uh, and conservative actors, while are more likely to make good choices on entry, they might miss out on some profitable ideas because they have not pivoted as often. Um, the last part that John was talking about I thought was fascinating and, and a good example of where modeling can inform empiricism in really important ways. Um, John advancing this idea that you might actually expect to see a correlation between the number of pivots and profits in a negative correlation. Um, but the reasoning is if you are pivoting more, it's because you've had bad experiments, you know, it's bad luck. And so that's why we're getting this negative relationship and we shouldn't interpret that as uh, negative for uh, pivoting. I think at the, at the heart of the paper, and again, where modeling can be so valuable here, is really starting to get at this idea of optimal timing, right? What it is, the right number of pivots, how frequently do you pivot? And they have a number of things around the overconfidence of the entrepreneur and the like that are determining what is the kind of optimal level that you would recommend uh, for pivoting here. And I think there's a nice you know, general takeaway for the uh, lean startup crowd, which is, hey, don't necessarily pivot early and often, right? That, that, that could be fatal for you in some of these circumstances here uh, and, and the like. So overall comments here, you know, first of all, uh, again, I think this is a great paper. Uh, I love the fact that it's grounded in a popular framing here and then providing much needed nuance to something that otherwise is a little, uh, little squishy here. Um, I would observe, and I think this is a strength of the paper, this is in essence the classic market, market opportunity search problem. Um, and so you see I have the uh, image of a multi-armed bandit here, which is like a classic uh, uh, search um, uh, you know, problem in modeling. Um, I, I would just recognize that that's in essence what you're trying to tackle here uh, with your experimentation and pivot. Uh, and I think that's a, that's, a, that's a great opportunity for you all. Uh, to broaden the framing here um, to kind of general search processes. So I would not get away from the lean startup framing. I think that's a great way to get entry into the, uh, into the topic here. Some, just quickly, some specific uh, observations and suggestions. Um, I love computational modeling. That's the majority of what I've done. Um, I did wonder, like, this might be able to be done analytically and still get some of the same results you had there. I didn't think enough about it exactly how I would model it that way, but just something to think about. Did you need a computational model? Um, I was trying to think about if you were going to tell this story uh, to a manager, um, what would be the more uh, kind of common uh, advice that you have? And this is always a challenge for us modelers of how to take these somewhat, uh, you know, in the, in the weeds or in the sky uh, models and turn them into like concrete advice. I think there's something there and I would challenge you to think 
you know, even more explicitly, like what would be the recommendation to a Silicon Valley manager uh, with the, the work that you've done? Um, this is a little bit of a nitpick. I was just thinking about the way you did pre-entry. Um, is that really how we experiment or do you only get to experiment after you enter? Um, and I don't know if it would change the model very much. I understood the, the reasons why you had it the way you did it. Um, it did make me think, could actors run multiple experiments at the same time on different ideas? So in the model, they kind of experiment in one idea and then they decide to pivot to a new one. Could you experiment somehow on multiple ideas? Uh, also made me think, could you re-pivot back to an old idea and what would that mean? So, you know, I'm, I'm trying this idea. It's not working out. I pivot somewhere else. Maybe that one doesn't work out. Can I re-pivot back to where I was before? You do see that sometimes in, uh, in you know, in the quote, unquote real world. Um, and then, you know, a question about, you know, how is the initial distribution of beliefs created? Uh, and that and that relates to what I'm going to call extensions. Um, so I don't think these are things you should incorporate into the paper now, because I think it really holds holds its own as it's currently written. Um, maybe not surprisingly, I'm going to I'm going to quote myself here, but, uh, you know, think about competition. You know, how would competition, if you explicitly modeled it, affect the outcomes here? And then another topic I'm really interested in and thinking a lot about is market failure. Now, let me talk about each of these, you know, quickly here. So again, you know, replicating things I've done in the past. So I apologize for that. But imagine if you had a simple model of competition, firms are competing on output um, and that's determined by both the number of competitors and the relative efficiency of each of those. You could have a whole bunch of sources of uncertainty. You'd have uncertainty in demand. You could have uncertainty in the production function. You might have uncertainty about competition itself. And you allow for heterogeneity and expectations, which is pretty common in our work when we, when we look at search processes. Um, I would just highlight that it's actually pretty easy to illustrate. I actually don't even need to simulate it to show that overconfidence can actually be beneficial. Uh, and what it causes is, in essence, overentry, which overall depresses prices and hurts profitability but actually might do so less so than others who are less confident than the overconfident person. So I raise this because then when you start thinking about the pivot question uh, or you know, what I'm calling search, um, we have a whole bunch of interesting implications. Like how do we react to the behaviors of others? If I'm aggressive and someone's conservative, how does that influence my entry decisions? Can we learn by imitating rivals? Am I observing what they're doing? If I use my analogy of the uh, gold mining, am I looking at where else people are mining and how does that influence my expectations? And then you can think of a whole bunch of gaming behavior where I start to maybe share information with rivals to maybe thwart their overconfidence, or there could there be signaling games where I'm trying to do false pivots. I'm trying to fool the market into thinking this is a profitable opportunity while I'm mainly you know, still experimenting in other areas. And again, I view all of these as extensions to what you've uh, done and maybe future, uh, future work. I do think there's some real world analogies here to how venture capitalists and ventures like in Silicon Valley sometimes behave as they're pursuing new, uh, new opportunities. You think about something like Uber and ride sharing, they weren't alone. There were hundreds of others pursuing that opportunity. And I can imagine some of this gaming was taking place as they tried to figure out if this made sense. All right, and then the last one I'm gonna leave you with is uh, something I've been thinking a lot about. So gratuitous uh, promotion of my own work. Um, I just had a recent book come out uh, called The Decarbonization Imperative where we're looking at climate change. And at the heart of what we're arguing is that the traditional way of framing um, uh, environmental issues around negative externalities 
um, is a limiting, a limiting frame of reference. And it often is based on an idea of, of Pareto optimality, whereas choices to improve the environment necessarily reduce the profitability of the firm. And what it ignores, of course, is what I think is at the heart of, of John and his co-authors work, which is the idea of search again. Uh, and if we think about innovation and search, um, you get a very different perspective when we think about a challenge like climate change and, and our need for new clean technologies. And so th this is where I'm going to blow things up to a much broader perspective here and an argument that the type of work John and co-authors is doing is, I think, uh, uh, could be critically important for a whole number of issues and around policy and the like. So if we put innovation and search as central to kind of market-based economies, a la Schumpeter here, I would argue that traditional models based on optimization equilibrium aren't up to the task for understanding these issues. Computational models of search like, like they've done here are actually designed with innovation dynamics in mind. And I would argue this is not some special topic for a few of us to write papers in management science on. This, this actually should be core to our understanding of how some of these markets function. And it definitely changes the way we think about institutions, um, that institutions policy now can create the conditions under which we are able to innovate and search. It's not just about solving the negative externality. So when it comes to climate change and our need for clean technologies, there's a whole set of policy instruments around subsidizing R&D, helping innovation that can help uh, generate a transition that go far beyond the traditional ways of just thinking about we need to put a price on uh, price on carbon here. And I would just observe that uh, this is an old, you know, 100 year old debate here between economics and, and uh, others. Uh, these critiques of whether firms actually optimize and whether markets equilibrate. And I just listed some, I could list hundreds of others here. Um, I just think this is a fundamental question that those of us in strategy um, are well positioned to tackle. And I think those of you using models like John and his team have developed are, are really asking these fundamental questions about search and innovation that, again, haven't historically been well treated in kind of quote unquote um, mainstream economics. Um, and so, for example, another one I've been thinking a lot about is ESG and some of the conventional wisdom there. And, and I think, again, if we think about investments as search, um, you get a very different perspective on what ESG means and the limiting factors and the, the opportunities there. But I'll pause there and uh, just say, again, this is a great paper. And I think, again, you could, you could take this in many different interesting directions. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, the, the tagline that, uh, that occurred to me in, in, your, in your talk is that, you know, prospectors don't pan for gold in a vacuum. So um, that, that's, a, that's a great uh, idea for an extension. All right, so Bebo, take it away. Great, can you see my screen? Yes. And hear me, perfect, great. Thank you. Uh, actually, uh, Mike, uh, without knowing it, probably you've given me the perfect segue into uh, into into this paper. You'll see you'll 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 see in a second why. So uh, this is this is a bit of a different paper from uh, from the previous one. So first of all, this is uh, uh, a bit earlier stage. Uh, I have not submitted it yet. This is just the first first write-up of the paper. Um, secondly, this is a 
bit of a different use, I think, of formal formal modeling. So there's not not a, a traditional formal model at the heart of this paper, but I use formal reasoning uh, to revisit some of the foundations of strategy, actually very much to the debate of things that maybe classical economics is not able to tackle so well. Um, and and I hope to offer uh, I hope to offer something new here, and it is uh, particularly regarding the concept of rents. Um, and to motivate why uh, I think you should worry uh, when you use rents, particularly in the current uh, current highly dynamic uh, environments, let me go back to actually traditional traditional uh, concepts of rents. So actually, Mike, per per your point, uh, here we see the uh, the the Schumpeterian versus the traditional Ricardian uh, re Ricardian view of rents, and you will probably recognize these from some first year PhD class uh, that you've done. Um, so very briefly, uh, 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 there's uh, there's Ricardian Ricardian and monopoly uh, Ricardian and monopoly rents. I think is strategy we often uh, think of as quite uh, similar. And by the way, uh, Rich Makadok, which I think was here earlier in the audience, has a fantastic paper on this. But these we think of uh, as driven by resources that are either intrinsically scarce, such as highly productive lands, or uh, or scarce uh, for legal reasons, such as patented drugs, which in principle can give you an indefinite uh, indefinite stream of rents. Um, contrasting that with Schumpeterian rents, uh, the uh, the debate, Mike, which you uh, which you alluded to, which are we think often think of innovative rents, so temporary uh, innovation-driven disequilibrium rents, and the first these first two type of rents also play a very important role. Um, in the original RBV, uh, where the idea of sustained competitive advantage comes from, this is sustained because you have access to some intrinsically uh, scarce and heterogeneous resource. Uh, and the final rent concept, which uh, I want to highlight, is quasi-rents, which also comes in many different terms, uh, but where you take into account also, and this is this is in neoclassical economics, the standard, where you take into account the opportunity cost of a resource's next best use. So, uh, for instance, an oil pipeline will typically generate very high quality. Uh, very high quasi-rents because once the uh, pipeline is laid down, uh, the, the cost is sunk in there and there's very little other use probably for, uh, for such a pipeline. So we can, and it's also very clear why we care so much about rents in strategy. Well, first of all, this is an economic definition of performance, and we care, we really care about firm performance, of course, which, but which is um, independent of accounting conventions. And second, there is a very clear link here with with the resource-based view. Uh, to get rents, uh, you need resources, and we can study what are the type of the resources. I think one one issue, though, with these uh, a key issue with these concepts of rents that uh, they're more or less defined in what in environments which I would call semi-static. So what do I mean with that? So these are environments where industry boundaries are well defined and stable. Uh, remaining in or at least close to competitive equilibrium. So yes, you can have Schumpeterian rents, but it is it is associated with a discrete event, like a new a new event, which are somewhat rare. And in these circumstances, you can talk about rents and resources very well. 
But what about in highly dynamic environments where industry boundaries are much less clear, competitive equilibrium might not be reached, and there's many, uh, many changes uh, very often occurring. And then, then you run into real issues in how to actually define rents to make sense of these definitions. These are not really new, like Winter 95 and Lippmann and Rimelto 3 have uh, written already some uh, wonderful papers where uh, they raise some of these issues. Uh, for instance, you might really work like, how does this still link to managerial performance? Uh, in traditional rent definitions, sunk cost is not taken into account. We really care about sunk cost. Um, and actually, uh, co with co highly co-specialized resources, it's, it's, it becomes, can become very hard to define what actually recording or quasi-rents uh, mean. Uh, second, in many environments, uh, this, this might not really link to strategic reality, especially when you remain far from competitive equilibrium. So as an example, I would like to think, think of Amazon, uh, which plays in many markets, which continuously refine. How would you even start to think about what are the opportunity costs of, of Amazon's data warehouses? What is the next best use of this? Should you think of the next best use in terms of uh, redeploying it from uh, its online retail business into uh, into uh, cloud computing? Should you think of this in redeployment um, into completely different business? Or, or should you think about like, what is the opportunity cost in, in, in sense of selling the PC separately? It's not so clear. Um, and these 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 issues really relate to uh, kind of critiques on also on lacking dynamism in the RBV. So uh, Nathan Fur and Kathy Eisenhardt just uh, published a, a journal of management paper um, arguing uh, that that resource-based view is really well versed in these more semi-static uh, environments and less in these highly dynamic environments. So what I want to define in this paper is a concept of rent that actually is also useful in highly dynamic environments. And the basic idea is to do so in terms of uh, the net present value over a time period. So this is this is the definition of uh, what I call dynamic rent. So it's the rents from some time uh, zero to uh, a time uh, big T. And what is the net present value over time? Well, it's the discounted cash flows. These are the discounted cash flows. YT are the cash flows, and they are discounted uh, with some cost of capital, plus the value of the current resource base minus the discounted value of the prior investments. So note that there are no industry, no definitions of industry boundaries here, no discrete resources or discrete resource changes. Um, just uh, the opportunity cost really is defined here over time. It is what was the original uh, investment or the original value of the resources that is taken as the opportunity cost. Um, and I want to, 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 to have a look at what are the properties of this di uh, definition of dynamic rents. So, uh, and that is that is an important part of the formal part of this paper. So first of all, uh, this is this is defined over longer time periods, which is really different from uh, different from earlier papers. Yeah? So the opportunity cost is the capital cost of the total resource value for an outside investor. Um, this is not definable as a run rate. So in the short term. Uh, uh, opportunity cost actually equals profits in this definition, uh, which actually means dynamic rents are equal to zero. 
Um, and this is uh, this uh, actually is is related to the argument Lipman and Rommel make, but this makes it very different from revenues or Ricardian rents or Schumpeterian rents, which makes sense. You can define these for arbitrarily short periods. Not so with how I define dynamic rents. This only makes sense over a long uh, time period. And for those of you, uh, so when you gave before uh, before the meeting, you gave a big shout out to um, uh, to the live measure. So this this you, this is long term investor value appropriation. So you can think of this if you are familiar with this earlier paper as an empirical operationalization of uh, dynamic rents using stock uh, stock market data. What is fundamentally different though, also from this uh, measure, and that's the second thing that's fundamentally different uh, of dynamic rents is that it is stochastic. And that comes from two facts. First of all, resource value is typically unknown. So yes, you might say for listed firms, we know the market capitalization, but we also know that that might, that is not uh, a perfect, uh, a, a perfect foresight of the, of the, of the actual resource value. Actually, in general, resource value is unknown and it will be an estimate uh, with, uh, with uncertainty. Even if you were to be able to observe uh, the, the current value of the resources to an outside investor, for instance, at the moment of sale of a firm or like at the uh, for V0 at the moment of the initial investment, even uh, in that case, still cost of capital is uncertain. Um, there is actually much more uncertainty probably than you think. So Fama and French uh, have a, a, a one of one of the Nobel laureates, by the way, uh, have a have an important paper showing that actually when you estimate the cost of capital, you easily get to standard errors of two or three percent, which means very wide. Like there could the confidence intervals could be very wide actually around them. So in general, dynamic rent we should think of this as a stochastic variable. And the final thing which I do uh, in the paper, and I would say this is this is the meat and the formal part of the paper, is that uh, rents are really are ill-defined over short periods. So I show that um, when you're sufficiently short, um, over sufficiently short time, the uncertainty in rents will always be much bigger, essentially, than, uh, than the expected value you get. Uh, typically, if you go below a few years, uh, the, there will be very high uncertainty in measuring dynamic rents. And actually the same thing is over very long, uh, very long time periods. Um, and to give you a quick intuition of why this is, and that is that that will be my close, uh, I will close with that. Um, but over very short time periods, you can think of rents in a stochastic world. You can think of rents as a measuring it with a noisy process. Uh, and um, many, some of you might recognize these as random walks. And the thing is with random walks, so these have a drift. So there is a competitive advantage uh, over time, but over very short time periods, uh, the noise tends to be much bigger than the signal. Only when you see a competitive advantage over longer time periods, actually you can distinguish uh, that there is a competitive advantage. So these are, these are five simulations of the same random walk. Uh, and you see only after a few years, you can see that on average, they, uh, they will actually create positive, uh, positive value or positive rents. 
And the second thing is that over very long time periods, so if you go back to over uh, rents that were generated 30, 40, 50 years ago, even with very small uncertainty margins of just 2% in your cost of capital, you get very big uncertainty margins of what you rents uh, of what your rents were so after 50 years the present value of one dollar of rents uh, with a six percent cost of capital would be twenty dollars so very big but with huge uncertainty margins somewhere between 17 and 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 close to 50 dollars so over very long time periods rents become very uncertain so that is what i want to do um uh, and then I see I have the wrong, the wrong, the wrong verses. So this is an old. So let me conclude. Uh, let me conclude verbally with the paper. So uh, I define. Uh, I uh, I introduce a new version, uh, a new version of rents, which uh, hopefully is uh, with the intent that it is also valid in highly uh, highly dynamic environments and. I think it's not, uh, I hope this makes uh, not only a contribution to the rent discussion, but also to make the uh, resource-based view more dynamic um, and, and have actually broader implications, not only for just profits, but even also for stakeholder theory and, and value creation, because also there the notion of opportunity cost plays, plays a very important role. So with that, let me close. And uh, I'm very curious what Martin uh, has to say about the paper. And I will stop sharing. All right, thank you, Fibo. So let me uh, share my screen. Can you guys see that? Yeah, it's working. All right, so thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss this paper and thank you for organizing an interesting session. And it's always uh, fun to uh, learn about different approaches to uh, models and, and and theory building so so it was really really a great great session so um so so this is a paper i i'll, I'll talk a little bit about the the motivation and as as Febo mentioned this is an earlier stage paper so there's things which are um maybe still evolving and uh and i also try to sort of think about a little bit more broadly and i really appreciate what uh felipe was saying uh in the earlier in his first discussion, because many of those trade-offs, I think, are relevant here as well, you know, in terms of simple and relevance, et cetera. So we can sort of revisit some of that discussion here as well. Uh, so motivation for Febo is this is a, um, he's sort of saying there are these existing conceptualizations of rents and they do not capture the dynamic elements. And now, of course, we have much more uh, dynamic context is much more relevant and uh, kind of the current the traditional RBV uh, is not really very well sort of positioned to do that. Uh, the way he, I think he mentioned that in the presentation, I think the way he's using a model is more of a way to create a language around dynamic rents. So this is not a typical way of we have a model and we have to look at it as a as a as a, as a way to generate some new completely new mechanisms. Right, but this is just a way to put a language around a certain types of arguments. And it's a very interesting way of using the model or using the math in this particular case. And we can also have this broader conversation. What do we think about this way of, of sort of using, using modeling? So, so he's viewing here, uh, rents is, is uncertain. There's some value over time that it sort of accumulates over time. There is a certain discount rate. 
and and there are some assumptions about the the t and the sort of the the errors and the and the value as they evolve over time and he make make several predictions that he uh he mentioned there so i have just a very basic and i may be oversimplifying here so i apologize if i do but this is kind of my very quick sort of intuition behind some of these predictions so for me, the, the proposition one is essentially saying over a short period of time, um, the, the, the rents or the what we're observing as performance is not very informative. And basically the argument is this, that you have noise that is sort of increasing very fast. It's, it's increasing with a, a square root of T, but we have a value which is increasing linearly with T. And then if we combine those together with you know, in a context of the model, we're essentially getting a dynamic like this. So we have, it takes some time uh, for the value to sort of play out and be evident in the data, right? And over a short period of time, we have the noise dominating. And that's why if we're observing performance over uh, short periods of time, where it's just not very informative and he's deriving what are the threshold values for T where the information that is in performance becomes informative. So this is kind of a very basic intuition for the first proposition. Uh, then the second one is also quite interesting, which is the second one. Uh, the argument is that the value sort of is proportional again with compounding. So this is something which we, you know, are, is very well established. And uh, early cash flows from an early stages of the firm, they grow over time as, you know, things are reinvested. Uh, so we can think about it as a flip side of sort of the traditional NPV calculations. And the key argument in proposition two is because of the early accumulation of the value and the compounding, if we accumulate, if you look at performance as a whole as total returns, the early, um, the early <clears throat> returns have so much weight in the determination that the recent values matter very little. And it's, it's kind of the, the, the compounding and the early dominance of these values becomes becomes important in driving the <clears throat> driving the performance. And another element of this is that the overall, the total rents become very sensitive to, <clears throat> I'm sorry, become very sensitive to changes in R, right? So those are the two results we're, we're getting, uh, we're getting in the proposition too. And as a result, the long-term, the very long-term rents are not very informative because of potentially not very informative because of those two mechanisms. And he again derives some, some threshold values there. So what, and there's also proposition three, which I'll talk about in a moment, but uh, in a more, more briefly. So what I like about this paper, so this paper is very nice, even though it's an earlier stage paper, it's very nicely written. I really recommend, uh, uh, recommend you to read it. It's a very clear logic. So on kind of the simplicity dimension that Felipe talked about, it's, 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 it's very transparent, very clear. I think uh, Fable does a very nice job guiding the reader through the model and through the logic. So it's really, uh, it's a pleasure to read this paper. The setup is also very careful, very strong in the kind of the RBV literature existing uh, notion of rents. The importance, the address is an important problem. How do we think about rents in a dynamic context? Maybe the existing conceptualizations are incomplete. So that's again, a very important issue here. And he's also, as he said, he's using a, a simple model or simple sort of mathematical approach to formalize language uh, around dynamic rents. And this is an interesting way to think, uh, to think about it. So what are some of my comments? So I, I liked how you set it up in the RBV, but I, I still kept thinking about it. Well, there are maybe other literatures where it could be brought in. So you are very heavily, and maybe that goes back to your own other work, but it's very heavily in kind of the RBV space, but there's many other literatures or some other literatures that could be relevant as well. 
there is literature on attributions and CEOs and I don't know, luck versus performance. So there's a number of studies that I think here are relevant and could be brought in. Maybe this is not necessarily a the main framing, but it could be made part of the framing and it would just increase the appeal, uh, appeal of the paper. And maybe this is something that could be incorporated as you move through the review process. Maybe that's not something if you want to get an RBV type of reviewer, maybe that's something that you can expand later. But I think there are, the paper could be made more appealing in terms of its positioning or more the appeal could be broader as opposed to uh, how it is written right now. I also also thinking a little bit, and I think you mentioned that in the paper, is this a really a novel type of, uh, the novel, novel way of describing rents or is it a novel way of how we measure the neoclassical rents? And I think this is a more of a, maybe a wordplay in some way, but, but maybe I can imagine some maybe reviewers or some editors sort of pushing back a little bit to what extent this is a completely new category as opposed to a different way to think about the existing rents. And I think, again, you, you, you describe, you have some discussion around this in the paper, but maybe scaling down some of these claims would actually be totally fine. So this is something, again, I don't have a strong opinion on this, but I thought about potentially you know, how, how much of this a novel rent this is versus it's just a novel way of sort of thinking about the existing rents. Uh, some comments about the propositions. Um, again, I think they make they all make sense. The proposition one is, I think you're essentially assuming the these differences in how noise and value are evolving. So this is not something that in a traditional modeling says would really emerge from the model, but, but given how we're using the model here and how we're using the math, maybe that's totally okay, right? So again, I, I thought it's, it's fine. Um, the proposition two, I actually thought about it a little bit. So you, you're making a claim that the long-term rents are not informative because of how, um, how sort of the early uh, the early values or the early cash flows dominate. But I was thinking, you know, and I, again, is this really an information problem? Because exposed, uh, everything is known. So the, the rents are known and also the values are known. So of course, you know, if, you, if you're looking, if you're forward looking, those things are just estimates and they're noisy, but backward looking, they're not. So you're talking about it as an information problem and it's the long-term rents are not informative but they're not informative only in the aggregate sense. But if we know the elements of the um, what, what are driving the total rents, do we really have an information problem, right? So again, this is something which may require a little bit more thinking. And again, the way how this is described, this is just kind of food for thought. But I, will, I struggle a little bit with that claim to what extent these long-term rates are not providing information because of the early dominance and the sensitivity to R if those things are known exposed. So that's something to think about. I think the proposition three is also interesting, but I, but I thought about it more as a starting point. So the argument there is there is some um, conditional on information. So it's all about information and conditional on these on knowing information and early values. One can determine the long-term rents I think that that feels a little bit like it needs more. Like this is an, making an interesting claim. You're generalizing the prior two propositions, but it seems like that needs to be opening up a new discussion and it seems like it needs sort of more, more fleshing out. Um, some additional, so again, this is, I think, again, this is an earlier paper, so it's different compared to those other two. So improving justification, how different 
pieces fit together would help. I was also thinking, well, what are some other long-term long -term determinants of how much informative uh, the rents are? So one can think about other mechanisms over long-term. Maybe there's some large shocks, maybe there's some correlated errors happening. So things which are now are excluded from the model, they can be thought as potential extensions and some other ways of how um, how to extend the model. I was also thinking this is kind of going back to Felipe's point that there are always going to be reviewers and editors who will want you to complexify. So I obviously had some of those ideas here as well. And you know, one way to complexify is to have a more of a model in which you have both reinvestments and payouts to, to the investors. So there's both and that you can have, you can imagine that they depend on some primitives of the model, right? And that would pro probably create a more, more more richer sort of richer dynamics over time that could again talk about and which you can talk about how informative different performance flows are. So uh, yeah, overall, it's a great paper. Really enjoy, enjoy discussing it and yeah, I wish best luck. So thank you very much. And I'll stop sharing. That's all from me. All right, thank you so much for the discussions and a wonderful job uh, helping us move the frontier um, and also um, helping the next generation scholars. I see young faces uh, on um, these displays. So hopefully we are providing a service. This is uh, one of the key missions of STR. Um, in the interest of time, uh, we would like to take questions over the chat. Um, if we do not have enough time to address them today, uh, I will pass these chat uh, questions over to the speakers, the discussants, um, whoever you would like to have them uh, to be sent to. Any comments, questions that you may have? So in the interest of time, I would encourage everyone to reach out to the authors or the discussants if they have questions. I think this was a great session, so thank you very much. Uh, the authors did a great job and the discussants really did a fantastic job and I think everyone can understand uses of formal modeling simulations in strategic management research, which was uh, part of the point of this. So thank you very much for your time. Yes, uh, thank you, Heather. Uh, and I, I would only add that, you know, you know we're, we're out of time, but um, for those still on, you know, I encourage you to, you know, pass this on to your um, network, because I think there's a lot of um, ideas for how to develop a modeling paper that if you dig, it's, it's, it, there's a lot, a lot there um, from the presenters and the discussants. Um, if I were to go back in time starting out, um, I would definitely watch this, uh, this uh, video. And this will be on the SCR YouTube channel. So we hope a lot of people will watch this. Thank right. you. Absolutely. All right, so that is our cue to officially end today's uh, Meet a Method session. I look forward to seeing you all in the next year with many more events. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks, bye.